Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Verse 7, Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray. Father, we rejoice that we have your word before us, that you communicate to us in clear terms, in language we can understand, that we don't have to grapple around with some uh, far-off mysteries and, and perhaps uh, philosophize our way to uh, some sort of conclusions about you. Instead, you have spoken to us in your word, and we are grateful. We're grateful particularly because we cannot find the answer to life's needs, particularly uh, our need for healing and redemption in our brokenness and sin. We cannot find those things by uh, uh, looking at nature, by philosophizing and pondering, by looking inward to our inner self or uh, something like that and trying to find uh, how it is we can be saved. We would not uh, be able to do that, but you have communicated to us in your word. And most particularly, we rejoice that you have communicated your Son to us in your word, who is the one who uh, meets our need, that our brokenness from sin creates a, a debt between us and you, a distance between man and his Creator and Jesus himself in his righteous life and in his sacrificial death bridges that gap for all those who have faith in him. And so we rejoice that we have your word. And Father, as we turn to this topic of the Abrahamic covenant tonight, we ask for your blessing. We ask for your work in our time and your work in our hearts by your spirit. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So we are working our way through the topic of covenant theology. And uh, we spent the first number of weeks talking about um, some covenants that we don't find explicitly named in Scripture. They are more theological uh, covenants, or um, you, have to, you have to think more broadly in Scripture to identify what they are. And of course, we talked about those. First of all, uh, the first one, uh, it, the covenant uh, that we talked about was the covenant of works, where um, Adam was told uh, basically he would have life if he obeyed this covenant, he and all of his posterity. If he disobeyed that covenant, he and all of his posterity would inherit judgment. And of course, that is the latter is what ended up happening. And so we talked about the covenant of works. Another um, covenant that takes place in time is the covenant of grace. And uh, we talked about the covenant of grace being where there is the seed of the woman, Jesus, who comes on the scene, and he himself obeys God in our place, thus earning righteousness, receiving the rewards of a completed 
covenant of works, and then he grants us that benefit so that we have the benefits of a completed covenant of works that is accomplished for us uh, in the covenant of grace by Jesus himself given to us, uh, received on our part by faith. And so we talked about the covenant of works. We talked about the covenant of grace. And overarching and, and, and guiding all of those, we talked about the covenant of redemption. Remember that pre-temporal intra-Trinitarian covenant where uh, our redemption was agreed upon uh, uh, between the members of the Trinity so that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit agreed together what they were going to do to accomplish the redemption of sinners. And so that's an overarching uh, covenant that uh, kind of governs these two. These are the theological covenants. These are, are the larger covenants that we talk about in covenant theology. But there's another set of covenants that we're used to talking about in Scripture, and these are, uh, these are the ones that occur more explicitly. So these are the explicit covenants. These we might call the theological covenants, right? And we work our way through the explicit covenants, the ones that we're used to talking about, the ones uh, that you can um, uh, readily point to where they begin in uh, Scripture where they are discussed. We talked last time, not last week, but the week before, we talked about the Noahic, the Noahic covenant that God establishes with Noah and really with all creatures, right? So you have the Noahic covenant, and if you just think historically through Scripture, the next one we're going to get to is what? The Abrahamic covenant. That's the Abrahamic covenant, and that is uh, what we're going to be looking at today. After the Abrahamic covenant, thinking through the history of the Old Testament, which one is going to come next? Mosaic covenant, right? And you can see that these are named for Noah and Abraham and Moses, right? And uh, they're named after the one who's going to be um, the... the, the, the the human figure that God makes the arrangement with, the covenant is made with that person and then it extends to posterity or those that are represented uh, in Him. Uh, so what comes after the Mosaic covenant? Davidic covenant, right? Again, David uh, is the one with whom God makes that covenant. And after the Davidic covenant, uh, what is the last one that we run across in the Bible? The new covenant, right? And so here, given in the Old Testament, um, spelled out for us there. And of course, who is the covenant head in the new covenant? Who is the one with whom uh, we, we, we read about that? That's Jesus himself, right? All right, so we're working our way through, having spent a few weeks talking about these theological covenants, we're now turning and working our way through the explicit covenants to see uh, what is the relationship between these and these? Is there a correlation? Is there a way we can understand these explicit covenants and, and see them pointing to uh, a uh, system of theological covenants uh, that we talk about in covenant theology? And of course, the argument we're making is that indeed, yes, you can understand uh, these explicit covenants in light of those theological covenants. So what we're going to uh, do today is work our way through 
the Abrahamic uh, covenant itself. And uh, so we go back to Genesis chapter 12. If you want to have a kind of a quick reference guide, um, it's good for us to know where these covenants are specifically located. And uh, usually, like the Davidic covenant, 2 Samuel 7, that's not a big deal, though the word covenant's not mentioned there. We talked about that. But it's kind of located in one spot. But with the Abrahamic covenant, that's not really the case. With the Abrahamic covenant, we've got the, the uh, covenant being rolled out sort of slowly. We have the um, initiation of it in chapter 12 that we just read. And then later on, when we get to chapter 15, we'll have it actually officially being instituted. And then in chapter 17, we're going to have it um, be uh, increased or expanded. And so it's, it takes place over the course of a number of chapters and it, over the course of a number of decades, really, in the life of Abraham. And so uh, when we talked about the Noahic covenant a couple of weeks ago, I know you've eaten Thanksgiving dinner since then, so it's possible that things might not have stayed. But um, what, how did we describe the Noahic covenant? What, what did it accomplish in the larger redemptive historical picture, the scheme of the whole Bible, what did the Noahic covenant accomplish? Stabilized, Stabilized right? Yeah. We, we, so we looked at um, what had happened to fallen humanity between chapter 3 and chapter 6, and things had gone really south, right? It was, there was terrible, horrific wickedness on the earth uh, by the time you get to Genesis chapter 6. And so uh, God comes and wipes out all humanity except for one family, wipes out even the, even the animals on the earth and birds in the sky and things like that except for representatives who are on the ark who survived this thing. And so uh, there's a statement made that we looked in, in uh, Sunday school this morning. We looked at a statement that God makes about the wickedness of man before the fall. And it's terrible, and it's extensive, and it's, uh, it's evil. And so God sends the flood, and we think, well, maybe that cured something. But then you read in chapter 8 and verse 21 that man's heart is just the same. And so that raises a problem for us, knowing that, that mankind is going to repeat those kinds of sins. Mankind is going to continue in a sinful state. What might that... Um, uh, bring about from God? What kind of response might God be uh, tempted, as it were, to give? What response might He give to a, a people just as wicked as He flooded the entire earth with in chapter 6? He, he, we might be afraid He would do the same thing again. And so God uh, makes this covenant with Noah, and He says, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to do that. Though mankind is wicked in his heart, all of his life and his thoughts and all of those things, mankind is just as wicked as he was before. Yet I will make my covenant, says God, and I will put the bow in the cloud to remind me that uh, I'm not going to destroy the earth and all flesh again by flood. Okay, there will be, there will be uh, a, a stabilizing factor going on that God is not going to render uh, the place uninhabitable again like he did with the flood. He's not going to judge in the same way all of uh, the earth as he did in that case. And in fact, he gives instructions to Noah. And he says, mankind is supposed to now promote family and protect life. We have an obligation in the Noahic covenant that we are to 
um, police ourselves so that when you have uh, 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 one human killing another human, unjustly, the murderer needs to be put to death. There's got to be justice. There needs to be governance. You need to govern yourselves, uh, establish some basic um, concepts of justice in order to preserve life. The Noahic Covenant is for the purpose of preserving the created order so that history can continue for the purpose of bringing about redemption. You see, if, if uh, history did not continue, if, it, if we kept doing this cycle of, of Genesis 3 to Genesis 6 and then flood and then Genesis 3 to Genesis 6 and then flood and you keep doing that same destructive thing over and over again, you wouldn't have the progress of redemptive history that we see in Scripture. So God establishes the Noahic covenant to stabilize the created order so as to uh, bring about the covenant of grace. So it will eventually be established in the earth. Okay? And so there's a, there's, there's a, a sense in which uh, we have common grace um, for the purpose of the remainder of the uh, uh, redemptive history to play out. Okay? All right. So that's what happened with the Noahic covenant. Well, now we're talking about the Abrahamic. We get to <clears throat> our, our passage here in Genesis chapter 12. And you'll notice in, when you're reading through Genesis and when we preach through Genesis, you're really ripping through time very quickly in the first 11 chapters. Very quickly. You're talking about lifespans of hundreds and hundreds of years. You're covering prehistory at a very high rate of speed, and all of a sudden it gears down when we get to chapter 12, and we spend a ton of chapters on one man. And then he has a son, and we spend a ton of chapters on his son, etc. It slows right down because we are beginning to describe um, the, the events of redemptive history itself. So we come to our passage today, uh, or our topic today, of the Abrahamic covenant. So when we looked at what we just read um, before I prayed there, the first three verses, really, you could read the whole first seven, um, but really the first three verses in verse seven are the uh, key elements of it. This is really just the initiation of the covenant. It's not fully established yet. We're going to see it developed more fully later on, but these are promises being given, but it's not the entirety of the covenant itself. And who, who are the parties involved in the Abrahamic covenant? Abraham, good, good guess. <laughs> yes, <laughs> exactly right. Abraham is one of the parties who, and God, right? So with the Abrahamic covenant, you've got, you've got parties. You have Abraham or Abram and God, right? And so um, you have some promises being made. And in these verses, what are the promises? What's that? Well, with Noah, that was the case, yeah. But we're, we're uh, on to, to Abraham, talking about Abraham. I heard another rumbling, but... All right, so there's going to be a nation or seed, right? What else? I'm sorry, I'm having trouble. This thing's buzzing at me. You've got to speak loudly. Land. Blessing, right? Blessing that goes from them out, right? Right, so you've got, you've got the, the land, seed, and blessing uh, being 
uh, promised to Abraham, right? There's going to be a nation, uh, offspring, right? Um, blessing that goes from them to all the earth. So it's not just localized in them or to be received by them, but it's really in you all the families of the earth will be blessed, right? So that blessing goes from them and goes out, right? So here we have the bare bones, very basic promises that initiate the covenant. This isn't the covenant itself. This is just the initial, um, the initial giving of it or outlining the sketch outline of it, right? And so um, that's, that's chapter 12. Now, having these things in mind, we're going to move on and we're going to see some greater detail as we go to chapter 15, okay? We have events that happen there in uh, 12, uh, 13, and 14, but then we get to chapter 15 and we come back to this discussion of the promises, okay? And so, uh, looking there at the beginning of chapter uh, 15, um, verse 2, Abraham said, O Lord, uh, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless. You promised me seed, that I would actually be a multitude, that I would be nations, or a nation. Um, but I continue childless in the air of my house as Eliezer of Damascus. Verse 2. So he's got a question. A lot of time has passed, and Abraham's old, and, and his wife is old. And they continue childless. He has a question. You've given me no offspring, he says. A member of my household will be my heir. Not even my own family member, but someone in my household. Right? And so um, God speaks to him there in verse 4 and said, This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. Right? So then we get into uh, the meat of it here, starting in verse 5. God brought him outside and said... Again, Genesis chapter 15 in verse 5, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. And then he said, So shall your offspring be. Right? So we have uh, a reinforcement of that initial promise uh, regarding offspring. And this time it's, it's, it's put in very visible terms that he could remind himself every night when he would go outside. Oh yeah, that's going to be like my offspring. Right, if I could count all those stars, I'll be able to count all my offspring. It's kind of what God is uh, wanting Abraham to have in his mind. So he's got the promise about that. And, uh, and he believed the Lord. And he counted it to him as righteousness. Very, very key verse that is going to be used by uh, uh, later writers to talk about justification, that we are declared righteous before God by faith alone. Here's an example of Abraham believing God's promise and being declared righteous. God counted him as righteousness, but that's a, a very good story for, uh, for, to be developed at another time. But he said to him, verse 7, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? And he said to him, Bring me a heifer, three years old, a female goat, three years old, a ram, three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. Bring me these animals. Abraham's question is, how shall I know? You made the promise, but it's kind of hanging out there. It's not tied to anything particularly. And so the Lord says, bring me these animals. In verse 10, he brought the animals. 
Uh, he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half, right? So he takes these animals and cuts them up. And God told him to do this, take these animals, cut them in half, and lay them, make, make a pathway between them. So you take the carcass and you cut it in half, and you, and, and you would put one half over here and the other half over here, and then you take the carcass of the next animal, and you'd place it that way, and you make an, you're making a pathway. And by the way, it's been described that, that in the midst of that pathway, the blood from the animals is running. It's a pretty, pretty visceral scene. You've got blood from these, from these slaughtered animals pooling and, and forming a pathway between the, the, the sides of the animals. And normally in a, in a covenant, in, in Hebrew, uh, they, they say to cut a covenant. And this is why they call it cutting a covenant. You don't just make a covenant. You, you can use that language in English, but in Hebrew, it's very clear you cut a covenant. And this is why. There's cutting involved in this. And the imagery that goes on here is that the, the two parties making the covenant together, this is a very solemn agreement. They've, they've, they've promised certain things to each other. They, they've said what they're going to give, what they're going to do in response, or how, whatever the, the particular elements are of the covenant. They, they make these commitments to each other, and then they take these animals, and they would, they would put them on different sides, and there's a pathway between, and they would walk through the animals, between the animals, sloshing through the muck, kind of getting it on. I mean, it's pretty, pretty visual. And the reason they do that is because what they're saying is, you see these animals that have been hacked to pieces? May worse than that happen to me if I don't keep my end of the covenant. May I be like that goat. May I be like uh, those animals cut into if I don't keep my end of the covenant. Right? So it, it would have made sense. It wouldn't have been a uh, I mean, it's, of course, it's God speaking to Abraham, so that would have been always momentous. But Abraham would have known the categories when God says to him, take these animals, right? Okay, I, I know what we're doing now. I know it's like sign on the bottom line. Like you, you, you understand that. He understands that kind of a concept of what's going on here. And so uh, God says, bring them, the, the heifer and the goat and the ram and the turtle dove and the young pigeon. He brought them, cut them in half and laid each half over against the other. He didn't cut the birds in two, probably too small. That's why they're two birds, right? But they're laid over against each other. They're, they're, they're dead. There's blood pooling between the two. Abraham knows what's coming next. We're going to walk through this, and I'm going to make this covenant that, you know, if I don't keep my end of the deal, I'm going to be like that heifer, right? So he's, he's probably uh, preparing himself for what is going to happen there. And then, of course, we have... Uh, this great scene, the birds of prey come down, he chases them off, right? And then as the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him, the, the presence of God weighing on him. And then the Lord said to Abram, so he's, he's fallen asleep. <laughs> Here Abraham has been girding up his loins to walk through and make this covenant, and instead uh, deep sleep falls upon him. And then you hear these words from God. The Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, 
will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years, talking about their time in Egypt to come after uh, the Joseph incident that we talked about this morning. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. So God starts off by telling him what's going to come. But look at verse 17. Remember what Abram has girded up his, his mind for. But when the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between the pieces. Where's Abraham? Unconscious on the side. Observing this in his mind, he's seeing it, but he's not participating in it. The smoking fire pot and flaming torch represent God Himself passing through those pieces. God Himself, and the, the smoke, of course, represents the Spirit and God's presence and the, and, and the furnace. You're, you're, we're having sort of imagery that flashes forward to when uh, Israel is going through the wilderness after they've been brought out of Egypt, and, and how are they led by a pillar of fire and a pillar of cloud? It's the same imagery, the presence of God. And so here's Abraham, unconscious, off to the side, having thought he was going to have to walk through this. But instead, God Himself walks through between those pieces. What does that mean? It means that He's responsible in spite for Himself. Abraham doesn't have any part in it. That's exactly right. God has taken it upon Himself. God is basically saying, God Almighty is basically saying, may this be done to me and more so if I don't uphold my end of the covenant. And what's Abraham swearing? Nothing. He's observing. He's observing what God is doing there. So we have this uh, image of an unconditional covenant that that God Himself is undertaken to complete this covenant, to bring about these truths. He's going to do that. And most specifically in this passage right here, He's made a strong assertion already. Remember about the offspring. Like the, like the stars in the night sky. Right? Abraham is asked, how will I know? Well, here's how you know, Abraham. <laughs> God walks through and makes this covenant. And then he continues. Verse 18, On that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. All that land, God is promising once again, I will give to you. So he's emphasizing both of these two aspects, saying, I will accomplish it, period. Right? So there's a promise of land that's going to go to the offspring. There was a very strong promise about the offspring at the beginning of the chapter, 
And here's a very strong promise about giving land to the offspring. And who has undertaken to accomplish it? Upon whom does it depend for this to come about and, and happen? Upon God Himself only. God has taken, undertaken to do this. Right? What a powerful, powerful passage uh, chapter 15 of Genesis really is. But that's not it, right? That's not all. We had the covenant initiated back in chapter 12. We have the covenant instituted here. The covenant has been cut in uh, this chapter here. It's been uh, clarified and developed. It's been established in this chapter. But then we turn to chapter 17. And we're going to see this covenant is increased or it's developed. And in this in this part, uh, in chapter 15, we saw an emphasis upon the descendants and the dwelling place. The offspring and the land. Well, now in 17, as, he's, as God is intensifying this covenant, He's going to focus on kingship and their compliance with the covenant. Okay, so we go to chapter 17. When Abraham, or when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you, and may multiply you greatly. So here we have sort of a summary statement, a call to attention, that God is back involved in this conversation. He wants Abraham to understand where they are in the conversation, what is going on. He gives a summary statement there, walk before me and be blameless, and here's what I'm going to do, right? I'm going to multiply you greatly. And then he moves on. Uh, and of course, Abraham does what he should do, which is falls on his face, right? Verse 3. And God says to him, verse 4, and God begins to talk about kingship. Kings involved in this nation. Behold, verse 4, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of, of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful. Right? He's going to be a multitude of nations. I'll make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. He's talking about abundance, uh, multiplying uh, on levels he can't comprehend. So much so that there are going to be kings that come from you, Abraham. Kings will come from you. And then, of course, we see the ultimate blessing there in verse 7. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you through their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. The blessing of having God Himself as their God. That being the greatest blessing. Verse 8, And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. So there's some intensified information in there. There's some intensified language there. But what is new is the language about kingship. So not only is there talk of becoming a nation and actually a multitude of nations, but kings will come from you. Kingship, royalty. Right? There are going to be kings that come from you. And another emphasis here on the land, that the land is uh, going to be given as well. And what's this ultimate blessing? Uh, God's presence. Right? God will give His 
very name to them, give his presence to them. And so we see the land of Canaan is, uh, is given. It's not just any old land. It's a particular land. We know what land it is. It's going to be the land of Canaan. Some descriptors are given. And so we see the same thing developed a little bit more, but now with discussion of kingship itself. So that's been developed, but now we move on to something, something a little bit different. And this is a new aspect when we look at uh, the Abrahamic covenant, because remember, who was it walked through the pieces? God. Abraham was off on the sidelines. He was in the grandstands observing as God was making this covenant. But, verse 9, verse 9 of chapter 17, And God said to Abram, Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant. Now, what do you mean, God? What do you mean? This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. This is a new concept. This is a new aspect of this covenant being given for the first time. He who is eight, day old, eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. And so we have a new demand for compliance. An explanation of what it means to walk blamelessly, or at least an aspect of it, a demand for loyalty, and that demand is circumcision. Circumcision to uh, the males of your household from eight days old and up, whether they're, they were born in your house or whether they've been brought in uh, from the outside or whatever, they are to undergo circumcision or be cut off. Or be cut off. So we've got 14 minutes left, and my goal is to answer some questions about some of the difficulties that might have, um, have come up as we think through this developing covenant that developed over the course of six chapters, really three chapters in there. Now the first question I want to ask and discuss has to do with a covenant itself. Remember early on we talked about there are some key elements of covenants, okay? We said that there are, uh, there are parties to the covenant, can we, can we uh, fill this in a little bit better? Can we be more specific than this? Who are the parties to this covenant? Abraham and his offspring, right? And God. Right? So we can fill it in a little bit more clearly regarding the parties. The covenant is made between God and Abraham and his offspring. Right? Um, and what are the stipulations? What are the stipulations that are given? The demands, the requirements. What's required of Abraham and his offspring? 
So, so it developed very slowly. Back in 12, we saw go, right? And then we saw it developed a little bit more walk before me, blamelessly, right? And then circumcision, right? It's a big deal in 17 there, right? Right? So you do have some stipulations being given there, right? And uh, what are the promises that are made? We talked about the promises. We developed these pretty well. These are the promises that are being made. And is there a sign of the covenant, an oath sign? Circumcision, right? So you do have an oath sign given there, which is a part of the stipulation. So we do have the elements of, the, of a covenant that uh, should be no surprise to us. Um, the, there, there are all the basic elements of the agreement uh, between God and Abraham and his offspring. Second question. Is the Abraham, Abrahamic covenant conditional or unconditional? What if they don't walk? More particularly, what if they don't circumcise? Because he talks about the consequences to that, right? Yeah, so is this a conditional covenant? Or is it an unconditional covenant? Who walked between the pieces? God walked between the pieces. That makes us think it's an unconditional covenant. God has unilaterally promised what he's going to do. Remember, he's the only one who went through the pieces. He's the only one who vowed and said, if I don't keep my end of the deal, may I be like this heifer. Abraham didn't do that. Abraham wasn't even asked to do that. Abraham wasn't even allowed to do that. He was rendered unconscious by God. Sounds like it's unconditional. But what happens if you don't circumcise your, your sons? You're out. You're cut off. Right? That sounds very conditional. How are we to understand this? Now, there are, there are different ways people have gone about it. Uh, some people will look at uh, this chapter and see that actually these are two different covenants being made. I don't, I don't think that's, um, I, that's, that's unconvincing to me. Uh, that There are two different covenants here going on in chapter 17 particularly. One unconditional and one conditional. So how are we to understand um, whether this is a conditional or an unconditional covenant. Did, let's, let's think about it this way. Did God promise these things? He promised them. He promised them how? By walking through the pieces. He said He was going to do it. He's going to accomplish these things. And by the way, when we look at the future uh, of, of the nation of Israel from the, for the next hundreds of years, from this point right here until hundreds of years later, are they obedient or disobedient? Largely disobedient, sometimes massively disobedient. Does God accomplish these things? Yeah, He accomplishes these things. So here's, here's how I think we understand it. That God, that in the sense of the nation, nationally speaking, 
This covenant is unconditional. It's unconditional. God is going to do it. If, you know, we're, we're, we're about to read um, about Judah and Tamar in 38. Fortunately, we get to punt until next year because it's Advent season. So I don't have to deal with that passage just yet. So God's providence is <laughs> very good. <laughs> but Judah, I mean, Judah, what a guy, right? What a guy. I mean, right alongside Reuben, what a guy, right? So, so Judah comes along. Judah's the grandson here. And if he, let's say, uh, Perez and um, I can't remember the other guys, the other kid's name. They're twins that are born to Tamar, fathered by her father-in-law. Let's say he doesn't circumcise them, right? Now, that'd be bad because that's Judah. <laughs> and we have real problems there. But let's say those boys don't circumcise their children or whatever. Is, is, does that mean that God is not going to fulfill these promises. Let's say that that child who, who uh, the, the, the man who doesn't circumcise his, his children is named Joe, right? And Joe is a great-grandchild of Abraham. He's in the line, right? And he doesn't circumcise his children, Will the nation of Israel still inherit these blessings? Will Joe? Joe will not. So individually, we might say it is a conditional covenant. In other words, God is going to accomplish this for these people for this people group. But you can opt out. You can opt out so that it will not be fulfilled for you, Joe. Right? And so uh, when we look at it, this, this is uh, trying to answer the question, is this covenant conditional or unconditional? Well, yeah. <laughs> it's hard to put... We have to... We have to we have to draw lines and we have to define exactly what we mean and about whom we're talking. To the nation of Israel, it is unconditional. He, he, he accomplished these things. He, he undertook himself, though, though they were disobedient, he took them into the land. He made them into a nation and, the, and kings came from them and he blessed them and, because he said he would do it. But for all the Joes who wanted to opt out, they, they don't experience the benefits of this. So individually, it's a conditional covenant. And that's, you have to conclude that when you read language like chapter 17 and verse 14, any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. How can you break an unconditional covenant? Well, individually speaking, it is not unconditional. It is conditional. So that's how, uh, that's how I understand this covenant. That nationally God is going to accomplish it, period. Individually, uh, people can opt out by uh, their own um, refusal to uh, walk before me in a manner that's pleasing. Right? So, third question. 
what then is the purpose of the Abrahamic covenant in the big picture? What is the purpose of the Abrahamic covenant in the big picture? What's that? Kings. All right, so we have kings. Yeah, it's going to point ultimately to Christ, right? All right, I like how you're thinking. We have a, we have a nation. The nation has a place to live. This is, this is kingdom language. And, and what do we call this kingdom that this nation with this king located in this land called by God's own name, what do we call that kingdom? It's the kingdom of Israel, right? Right? The kingdom of Israel is what, we're, is, what is being accomplished. That's not good. Clean that right off on the carpet. The kingdom of Israel is being set up, right? We see the beginnings, in other words, we see the beginnings of the old covenant. The Abrahamic covenant gives us the beginnings of the old covenant itself. We're going to develop that much more fully as we continue, but the Abrahamic covenant establishes who will be the people to populate the nation of Israel, right? It's almost exclusively going to be the offspring of Abraham, though others can enter in, but it will only be those who have undergone circumcision, at least the males. So the Abrahamic covenant gives us, tells us who it will be who's going to populate the nation of Israel, and what's the purpose of the nation of Israel? What's the purpose of the kingdom of Israel? Emmanuel. They are going to bring forth the Messiah. That's the grand purpose. The ultimate, the ultimate fulfillment. When we talk about God's presence, the blessing of God's presence, how do, how do we say that in Hebrew? We call it Emmanuel, right? God with us, right? We talk about this king. We talk about the one who is ultimately the singular seed, as Paul will say in Galatians chapter 3. Right? So the purpose of the nation of Israel is to bring about the Messiah. In other words, the Abrahamic covenant is the beginning of the Old Covenant. And the Old Covenant brings forth the Messiah, and the Messiah brings forth the New Covenant. So you have it linked. You have direction and purpose for the kingdom of Israel. And that purpose is right here in this king, in this singular seed. And that's where the Abrahamic covenant fits into um, the, the explicit covenants of Scripture. And even when we think about covenant of works, covenant of grace, we're talking about the old covenant which is going to produce the Messiah and the Messiah is going to bring about the new covenant which is the covenant of grace. So it's headed that direction to bring about Christ. And so when we talk about how the Abrahamic covenant fits in, there's a lot to think about. There's a lot for us to, uh, to look at that goes on here. 
but it begins to make sense of why. What's the purpose? What is, what is God promising He's going to accomplish? His end goal is beyond just a people in a land who have been blessed. The end goal is that blessing that comes from them. The end goal is this seed that Paul will say is the singular seed who is that blessing, Christ Himself. The goal, the purpose is Jesus. And so we have a reason for there to be uh, the establishment of the kingdom of Israel. And we're going to, uh, we're going to develop this theme uh, in the next couple of weeks as we talk about the subsequent uh, explicit covenants. And we'll see a further development of the old covenant. But the purpose of all of that is to bring about Jesus. To bring about the Messiah. The one who will save his people from their sins. The one who is Emmanuel. The one who is the seed of Abraham. Jesus himself is the purpose of the Abrahamic covenant. So that's how uh, we, can, we can understand um, this covenant, which is developing over the course of a number of chapters, but has great impact as we read through the rest of Scripture. As we think about the further development of the Old Covenant, as we're going to run into the Mosaic Covenant, we're going to run into the Davidic Covenant, in what direction do they all point? They point to that Messiah who's going to come, the one who will keep the, the law, the one who will be that Davidic king, the one who will be the ultimate seed of Abraham, who is our Savior Jesus. That's the direction it's all heading. Yes? of chapter 17 and I will give you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojourning all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession right so let's turn to uh, we'll try and answer this briefly yeah <laughs> ask, ask me with 30 seconds left that's right so um, uh, front two tables turn to Joshua 21 uh, back two tables turn to Nehemiah 9 Whoever gets to Joshua 21, verses 43 through 45, read it out for us nice and loud, please. Through 45. Nice and loud. The Lord gave to Israel all the land that he swore to give to their fathers, and they took possession of it, and they settled there. And the Lord gave them rest on every side, just as he had sworn to their fathers. Not one of all their enemies had withstood them, for the Lord had given all their enemies into their hands. Not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. So the, the land was fully given. According to the promise of God, the land was fully given to the people. What uh, Can someone read Nehemiah 9, verses 7 through 8 for us, please? Did God fulfill His promise to give them the land? Yes. Now, they, they don't have it. They lost it. 
They end up getting kicked out of it. So does that mean there's something remaining to be fulfilled? No, and here's why. If I, um, let's say I have a, let's say my father passed on to me a uh, half million dollar Lamborghini. It's got 118 miles on it. Worth, you know, it's, it's wonderful. And if I, and he, and he gives that to me, right, and says, son, it is yours. And I say, woohoo, right? Well, let's say that I then pass it on to Gabriel, and I say, Gabriel, this Lamborghini passed down to me by my father is very special. It is now yours forever. Could Gabriel lose that in a poker game? Uh, only in Nevada, yeah. That illustration works really well here. <laughs> right? Is that any fault of mine that he lost it in a poker game? Absolutely not. I gave it to him forever. I didn't say, son, you can borrow it. Here are the keys. Um, have it back by midnight. I didn't say you could use it for prom. Have it back Sunday. I didn't. Nothing like that. I said, here, it's yours. And if he, through his own negligence, loses it, if he through his own disobedience, opts out. Is that any fault of mine, the giver? No. Was it any fault of God's that the people of Israel disobeyed him so extensively that he finally kicks them out? Is that his fault? No, that's like Gabriel uh, uh, losing this car in some, uh, through some foolishness of his own. It was given in, in full. The land was given. That's what Joshua is saying. The whole thing. That's what Nehemiah is reiterating. The whole thing. God kept his promise. So why are we having problems? It's the poker game is the problem. So that's how I understand those land promises. They were kept in full and through no fault of the giver, through the fault of those who had received uh, that gift, it was, it was lost. All right. Thank you, guys. I know that was fast and furious and lots of chapters, and I appreciate it. Let me, let me close this in prayer. Father, we are so grateful uh, that, that you made such promises to Abraham, to his offspring. We, we see the rest of Scripture, and we see how you kept those promises that actually you did bring about uh, that seed, that singular seed, Jesus, the one who, uh, who fulfilled these promises the one who kept your word, the one who died in our place, the one who extends blessing to all the families of the earth, to all those who will believe in him. And we are so grateful that we have Jesus. And Father, we are grateful even a step further as we think about this covenant and the, un the unconditional and conditional aspects of it. It's those conditional aspects of this covenant that are so concerning as we think about the Joes who might opt out and thus not experience these blessings. I thank you that Jesus has kept the covenant, the new covenant. He has obeyed it. He has obeyed it for me because I so often am like Joe. But Jesus has kept that covenant. And for all of us who have been united with Him by faith, that covenant is kept for us, period. Never to be lost. Never to be gambled away. 
Our unfaithfulness doesn't despoil it because Jesus, our Savior, is faithful. Thank you for the security that we have in Christ, that we get to call you our Father because of what Jesus has done. And He has kept His Word, and He has kept the covenant, and we get to bear those benefits, and we rejoice in that. Father, I pray that we would be encouraged in all that we have in Christ, the riches that are ours in Christ, the the great confidence and comfort that we have in Jesus, the great security that we have in our Savior. And we pray in His name. Amen.